Hello, everyone. My name is Mark LeBlanc. I happen to be the chairman of Indie Books International. Welcome to this week's episode of our video podcast, Marketing with a Book. At Indie Books International, we believe in writing the right book, but writing the right book from the perspective that it positions you for doing more of the good work that you are called and compelled to do. While many publishers and book experts focus on selling more books for book's sake, we believe that is important, but it is secondary to doing more consulting work or more keynote speeches or more getting more coaching clients or training assignments. Too many people write a good book with the wrong title, the wrong table uh, of contents. And we work very hard to make sure that your book not only positions you for book sales, but again, for doing more of the good work that you feel called and compelled to do. We have an amazing guest here today, as we always have, uh, Mason Harris, uh, who released his um, uh, recently uh, published book, The Chutzpah uh, Advantage. And uh, before we bring Mason on, we do a little author roll call uh, for our authors. If you'd be so kind to uh, go around the horn and we'll start with David and then Joe uh, Palo, if you would give us your name, where you're from, and uh, the book that you are currently working on or one that's been uh, recently uh, released. David, uh, take it away. Thank you, Mark. Hi, I'm David Goldman, and I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I wrote the book, uh, The Road to Happiness, How to Get What You Really Want. I'm working on a book called Bringing in the Business, uh, how, how, to, uh, how, how Professionals Can Bring in More Business Without Feeling Like Salespeople. Thank you, David. Joe Palo, and then uh, John. Thanks, Mark. I'm Joe Palo. I'm in St. Paul, Minnesota. My upcoming book is How to Sell Nothing, A Logical Way to Make the Emotional Sale, which will be due out in November. Great. Thank you, Joe. John, and then Chris. Hello, I'm John Salika from Memphis, Tennessee. My working on my first book, so my upcoming book's called Building Trust for Companies, where I want to help organizations build trust in their organization through measurable and manageable techniques, as opposed to just trying to use some vague, nebulous sense of whether they or not they have trust. Thank you, John. The world could use a little more trust. I uh, anticipate that your book will be high in demand. Thanks, Mark. So good, good work. And Chris? Everybody, can you hear me, Mark? Just to double check. Yeah. Okay, yep. great. Um, I am, I'm in Denver, Colorado. I'm the author of Noble Automation Now, and that is Innovate, Motivate, and Transform with Intelligent Automation and Beyond. Well, the book will be thank out in October or November. I'm not sure which. Uh, thank you, Chris. Um, we've all been waiting for it. Is that my introduction? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mason, uh, good to have you with us here today. Uh, Mason Harris wrote a, a great book called The Chutzpah uh, Advantage. Um, not a word that you tend to see all that often. I, I'm not sure if it's a, a kind of pizza 
um, uh, or what it is, but the subtitle is rather unique uh, in that it is go bigger, be bolder, and do better. Something that we all hopefully aspire to. Um, Mason was born with a plastic uh, spoon in his mouth uh, to immigrant parents who found both safety and opportunity in the United States. He is an observer of people and a lifelong student of self-improvement and business. His education was both formal undergrad and an MBA and informal on the streets of New York. He was fascinated by the personalities and the stories of the people that he encountered. And he learned that the actions, the perseverance, and that risk-taking led these people to more successful lives, himself included. These behaviors and others are identified and make for the foundation of his book, which is his second book, The Chutzpah Advantage. Mason, take it away for a bit, and then we'll come back and ask you some questions. That's great. Thank you, Mark, for the introduction. Thank you, everybody who is who is participating tonight. Uh, I'd like to start by first recognizing that we're kind of all in a unique club or aspiring to be in that club, and that is to be authors, to be influencers, to have a legacy that we leave that goes beyond us. And that takes chutzpah, as we will see when we go through the various behaviors. I'm also going to do something I haven't done before. I'm going to see how our chutzpah as authors and aspiring authors compares or is almost identical to the same chutzpah as two business people in New York City. The first one began, I guess, dealing drugs when he was in his teens and he was a criminal. By the time he was 19, he was earning $2 million a year. He had 20 people working for him. He was in the logistics business the marketing business. He was in the business of satisfying people's needs. He's probably not somebody I'd want to have a, a coffee with, sit across the table from. Uh, I say in the book, I've seen Shawshank Redemption. I am not interested in being that close to somebody who served hard time, as you will learn. The second business person opened a health club, a physical fitness facility. Now, when we think about this industry, it is, it is filled with billion dollar valuation competitors, the LA fitnesses of the world, the equinoxes of the world. What does it take to be that sole person who says, I have an idea, I'm going to provide a different type of fitness for my clientele, and I'm going to successfully compete and not only make a business for myself, I'm gonna provide above average wages and security for my employees, my stakeholders, and I'm certainly going to provide the best possible service around. Now, the real interesting thing, oh, by the way, that person I'd happily have a cup of coffee with because I'm always intrigued by people who start businesses. That takes a lot of chutzpah. Now, the really interesting things about these two businesses, these two people, it's actually the same person, prison and post-prison. And the skill set that enabled him to both 
build the business while he was a teenager, generating tremendous sums of money while providing a product that, I guess I'm gonna offer a, a personal um, observation, sadly wanted, and these were drugs that were clearly illegal and carried a lot of risk with them. He survived prison and then he came out and was able to create an opportunity for himself impresses me and it takes chutzpah and the various behaviors we discuss i'm going to share the model with you and then we'll have a chance to choose which of them we want to apply towards ourselves again as authors or aspiring authors and i believe that right away is a demonstration of chutzpah and at the same time the drug dealing entrepreneur who also happens to be the entrepreneur who opened a physical fitness facility. Okay, so let's start with this. For those of you who um, have a sheet of paper or a pen or want to do this, but you don't need to, think in terms of a circle. And then you can draw the circle. And if you'd like, divide that circle into eight equal pieces. In essence, it's a pizza pie with eight slices. Easy enough to do. And let's take the letters of chutzpah and put each letter in one of these slices, starting at the one that's at the one o'clock area. So it's C, H, U, T, Z, P, A, H. I'm going to give a very brief description of these behaviors and characteristics. And again, we're going to then choose as a group which ones we wanna really discuss because some of us are here to learn what it is we're doing as authors or aspiring authors, and how can the chutzpah advantage help us as we pursue our objectives in this area? And are they really that similar to a guy who deals drugs, who opens up a physical fitness facility? And you'll come to a conclusion about that. So the first one, that C, that's by a kind of a one o'clock on your circle, on your pizza wheel, is about no more, no more procrastination. No more, this is a good idea, I'm gonna put it off tomorrow. Ooh, I really wanna write that book, but I just don't have time now. You know, tonight would be a good night to start outlining my chapters, but I don't have the time. So the C stands for carpe diem. Seize the day, or seize the moment if you are a Robin Williams fan and uh, saw the movie where carpe diem was, was such a big uh, piece of the plot. So seize the day, Carpe Diem says, we have opportunities in front of us. Too often, we let them slide by. We put them off because we have other priorities. Carpe Diem is a basic and fundamental rule of chutzpah. Frankly, it's a fundamental rule of success. And that is seize the day, no more procrastination. The H that follows the C working clockwise. It's based on something I read from Malcolm Gladwell, who's one of my favorite authors. And he spoke in one of his books uh, about what he called the law of 10,000 hours. And that law talks about 10,000 hours as being the minimum to truly become so proficient in your field, so much of an expert that you are an outlier. Well, I modified that slightly. And the H stands for handling objections. And I call this the law of 10,000 objections because in our personal lives, with our family members, at work, 
colleagues, people we meet, it's inevitable that the ideas you share will get acceptance from some people and objections from others. We are all in sales, whether or not we consider ourselves to be in sales. And salespeople certainly know and are trained specifically as to how to handle objections. I bring it up for all of us because whether or not we identify as salespeople, we still need to persuade others. So learning how to handle objections puts us on a track for more success. Let's move on to the next letter, the U. U is about understanding the difference between need, pain, and opportunity. And I call this understanding need, pain, and, under, and opportunity. So a quick example, um, we are all into our health. Some people take it more seriously than others and uh, might see their physician or their dentist more regularly for preventive care. So chances are we go to the dentist at least once a year. Some people go three or four times a year for cleaning or for preventive purposes. We don't want anything to happen such that we have the emergency call to the dentist that, oh, my tooth is throbbing, I can't think, I can't sleep. Can I please, please, please get in today to have you look at it? That's when a need becomes a pain. It's real easy to convince somebody to make a decision when they're in pain. It's difficult when they have a need and they don't see where that need is going to become a pain, but you do see it and you can help them see it. The opportunity is another level. That's where traditionally, oh, need, pain, we can solve. We can sell a service. We can provide a service. Um, there's a product that would solve these issues for a prospective client. Opportunity might be the example of Uber, where there certainly was no lack of transportation services between taxi and limousine services, buses, subways. They didn't see their market as, oh, we're just like them. They saw an opportunity to reach people who were reluctant to go out with friends because the friends would be drinking and they didn't want to drink because they knew they were going to be the designated driver. They saw an opportunity for people who thought to themselves, I don't want to get stuck looking for a cab on a street in New York when it's raining out because they're impossible to find. That was the basis for Uber and for understanding need, pain and opportunity. The next letter as we go down this pizza pie, the T. The T is about a unique characteristic that takes a bit more courage than some of the others. Because if you are a trailblazer, which is what T stands for, you recognize that you are going to make errors along the way. You are going to fail. And for some, even worse, there's always going to be a critic behind laughing, smirking at your failure. Of course, this is the same person who would never risk what you're doing. Trailblazers hold a different place in our business world, in our society, in what they accomplish from a social standpoint. So a Martin Luther King was a trailblazer. There's no doubt about that. And by the way, we're gonna see as well, chutzpah isn't about business. It's about everybody and everyday decisions. Okay, going further down the wheel, we're now on the, uh, the other side in the uh, six to seven o'clock area. The, that slice is the Z. 
Well, the Z stands for zigzag. And by that, I mean obstacles that we face. Some obstacles are easy to get around and we don't hesitate. Some obstacles seem insurmountable. So for example, um, show of hands, how many people are familiar with the book, Chicken Soup for the Soul? Okay, Do you, does anybody wanna venture a guess? And you can put this in your comments as to how many publishers rejected that book before it was published? I see some smiles. I don't have the comments, but uh, Mark, if you have something that you're seeing coming up, that would be great. Thank you, Mason. I'm seeing uh, 100, 150, 52, uh, 20. I'm pretty sure it was more than 100, but- uh... It was, I believe, 142 rejections. This is obstacle after obstacle. Frequently, and I say this one because, again, we're authors or we're aspiring authors. And there are going to be people that say, you know, your book is not for me. Fortunately, we're in a community. We're part of, of a family where we're going to be supporting each other and getting expert advice that enables us to bring our books to market. But can you imagine the no, 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 no? Oh, they haven't gotten back to me. That's better than a no, constantly. Well, these obstacles are thrown in our way on multiple levels across personal, business, um, all sorts of objectives that we have and we're trying to reach, and they seem insurmountable. People with zigzag find a way around. There's a, a very quickly another story. There was an actor uh, in New York who was supposedly down to the last $300 in his bank account. And he was getting small parts and he wrote a story um, that he wanted to star in and he was pitching it to studios and getting rejections. And then finally, one studio said, you know, we like your script and we'll give you a part in the movie and we'll pay you $300,000 for the full rights, but we're going to cast somebody else in the lead. And this actor said, no, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to do that. Any idea who this might be? And I'm not going to wait for, okay, we get some, some head shaking. Chris, uh, when you put your speak, uh, Take yourself I'm almost I'm almost positive it's Sylvester Stallone. You are absolutely right. Sylvester Stallone dreamed in himself and he was willing to say no to an offer that most people would have been blessing the heavens for having received, especially in the dire condition he was in. Okay? But he zigzagged. He kept going and then he had the the guts to say this offer isn't good enough. Okay, let's move around once more to the P. P is one of the, to me, most important qualities of chutzpah. Um, and this, this impacts us in the more serious situations in our lives. So at one level, uh, being told, no, I'm not gonna publish your book 140 times, requires something to make you go to that 141st publisher and the 142nd. P stands for purpose. Now, purpose gets to the core of what drives us. The core of what will make us move beyond what seems to be insurmountable um, pain, terror, uh, physicians telling us your cancer is incurable, it's terminal. 
you may as well make plans right now because you're not going to be around in six months. And then having that person say, I don't accept that. I'm going to find a treatment. I'm going to find another doctor because I've only seen one person. Okay. Uh, when we think back to the Vietnam War and the prison camps and say Senator John McCain, who was one of the more famous prisoners in camps and others who wrote books about their experience, they didn't write about, uh, well, they wrote about the terror. They wrote about the torture. They wrote about the difficulty. They wrote about supporting their comrades, but they also wrote about what kept them going. And it was always a purpose. In some cases, I'm going to survive this because I have a wife at home, or I have a kid that was two years old when I left to fight on behalf of my country. That purpose enabled them to continue. Now, luck can interfere with this. And that gets into a book by Viktor Frankl called Man's Search for Meaning, where he said, if bad luck interfered, it was over for you. But if it didn't, he could start telling who was going to survive and who wasn't going to survive. That's the P, that's the purpose. The next one, the A in our pizza wheel, in our chutzpah model. We all have to make decisions. Some of us are better than others. Some of us actually use different types of models to make decisions. We know that some decisions are easier, some decisions are harder. This ambiguity freezes people. It stops them from making decisions very often because they don't want to be wrong, even on the smallest incidents. So A stands for ambiguity elimination, because we can't move forward without making a decision. And potentially equally as bad when we don't make a decision, the decisions are made for us. And then we have to adapt or respond to an even worse scenario. And then the last one, the H, or the last H in this pizza wheel, it's the second H, and I'm trying to get a sense for what time it is to see how much time I've taken. So I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on this because you're going to help me decide which ones you want to explore further. The last one, that H, is about our humanity, but it doesn't stand for humanity. It stands for humility. And this is a very critical leadership concept as well. Jim Collins in Good to Great, when he speaks about companies and their leaders, that help separate uh, large companies from others who seem to be in as good position as they are, but went from a good category to great, mentions humility as one of those critical leadership qualities that people need. I think I'm roughly 15 to 17 minutes in, Mark, so we can start opening up for questions, comments, and let's see if there is any desire to talk about any of these behaviors in more detail and apply it to us as authors, aspiring authors, or to Cas Marte as a drug dealer, or to Cas Marte as the founder of a company called Conbody, for a convict body. Up to you. All right. Uh, thank you, Mason. Um, thank you for that over, uh, fairly quick overview of really a, a deep well of experience and expertise. Um, I don't really care what others want to talk about. I know what I want to hear more about. Um, and so if any of you have something you want to uh, hear Mason uh, talk a little bit about, make sure you put it in the chat box. Um, but Mason, I'd like to hear a little bit more about ambiguity um, as it relates to decision-making. 
Okay, that's a great place to start. And let's start also by looking at the ambiguity we face when we're writing our books. And more importantly, when we're choosing a publisher we can work with. Because the, the internet is littered with so-called publishing experts who sadly, whose expertise is less than us sitting here as aspiring or new authors. But they're out there selling services because there's no certification for being good at what they do. So on the ambiguity side, as an author, I know when I was writing my book, I had to face decisions, for example, on things to leave in, things to remove, and what areas to go to. I could have continued writing, which is very common for authors who never complete their books because they strive for perfection. I think it's uh, at the expense of completion is uh, the way somebody else once put it. And I'd rather have a book that's completed with some minor flaws, as long as the overall message resonates with people and helps people than one that is, oh, I just have to go through this one more time. I need to rewrite this chapter. Oh, I'm gonna rewrite it again because I just got a great idea. At some point, you need to make that decision. I'm gonna get it to the editors and I'm gonna let them give me the feedback now. I'm not going to be scared to share my work with somebody outside my family or my inner circle because now I need the help of real experts. Jeff Bezos of Amazon fame actually speaks about uh, a model of decision-making that he calls the, the one-way door or the two-way swinging door. And in essence, a two-way swinging door is relatively easy decisions. You make the decision. If it's the wrong one, you go back. You, write, you rewrite a chapter. You give it to the editor. The editor says, this isn't as tight as I want it. I think you could do better. You had mentioned idea. Please rewrite this section. That's easy. You go back. You get on your uh, computer, and you redo the chapter. The one-way door is where I'm committed to printing what I have. You want to be more sure about where you are. You want the, the advice from multiple editors. You want to know that, that Mark and Henry and the team at Indie has reviewed our stuff and they've come up and said, this is pretty good. This has a market. Your message is sound. But then we're thinking, we're, we're still thinking, oh, but if I make that decision, I can't go back. You actually can go back and make some changes afterwards is something that I've learned. So that shouldn't hold you back. Well, what Bezos says is too often, we treat two-way swinging door decisions as if it was a one-way door. So, boy, should I get this car or this car? As if it is world shattering and we wait and we explore and we research to death and we still don't come to a decision. Why? Because we saw an ad on TV for another car that just came out and that throws, creates more ambiguity for us. And now we have to research another one. At some point you can say, these cars provide the same basic service with some different amenities, some different features. Make the decision and move on because you're keeping yourself stuck. I've done it. I've kept myself stuck when I was writing as an example. In the case of, uh, well, actually we'll leave the drug dealer and the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the exercise club entrepreneur out. Maybe we'll do that in the next one. Does that help, Mark? Um, it does help. Um, every day, and, I'm, and I know that it's not limited to entrepreneurs, but every day I'm in conversations with people uh, who want me to help them or guide them in growing their business or their practice. And it, it seems like um, 
many days it's the same conversation same ambiguity different day yeah and and sometimes i think people are good at and i know uh, myself included at at times uh over the course of my evolution um where we just we think about something and we struggle with it and we have too many options and we just cannot make a decision but it seems like this ambiguity um is almost like the disease of our time mm -hmm. i find some people actually get pleasure in the ambiguity and adding more and more options so they can keep delaying and as we see these behaviors tie in when you eliminate the ambiguity when you make your decision you're on your way to carpe diem mm. right you're on your way to seizing the day to implementing something that you've been waiting to do there's no more procrastination so they tie in and in some cases overlap with each other. Mason, you just unlocked something for me. It seems like people are taking pleasure uh, in not making decisions and wrestling with me in, in order to make decisions. Um, uh, so I'm gonna have to think about that one. Um, Joe Palo uh, uh, asks um, you, is there one that seems to be needed or addressed more often than the others? Well, that's a great question. Um, I think all eight are critical. Um, and if, if we're going to start trying to rank them in terms of importance, it depends on your role. So carpe diem is critical to getting started. There's no way around it. There's no more sitting on my rear end and saying, I'm gonna to get to that tomorrow, or I'm gonna go clean out that garage so that my wife stops bothering me. No, don't wait till three weekends from now. Do it, get it done. You get things done, there's a sense of satisfaction. Right away, that's critical. The handling objections, I believe is important in particular if we're thin-skinned. If we're thick skinned, I, I can deal with, with somebody saying no to me. There are a client says no about a speaking engagement. There are a thousand more to explore and reach out to. It's okay. So um, the idea that do I need that to get by every objection? No, sometimes objections cannot be overridden. Well, I can't use you to speak on this because I'll be honest with you, I haven't shared this in the six times we've spoken already, but I already hired my brother-in-law. You weren't getting by that one. And if you could have uncovered that one earlier, it would have saved you a amount of time. Or if you would decided, you know, this may not be the right opportunity at the right time. I might circle back to it later, but for now, I'm gonna find somebody else that I can speak to about my capabilities and work with them. So that's important, but people can decide when they're gonna move beyond the objections. Uh, very closely related to the objections is the zigzag around obstacles. At what point does uh, Chicken Soup for the Soul or JK Rowling say, I'm in poverty. I can't get the first 13 publishers who've read this book, which I think is great to do anything with it. And the 14th does. Um, they, they're related to each other. One requires a different level of perseverance because it's almost like there's no going back now. I'm going to find somebody to fund my business or I'm going to find a new market. Okay, so for example, let me go back to the drug dealer for a second on this. 
he says, in his journey to becoming a business person, a successful entrepreneur, uh, and his name, by the way, is Kos Marte. He has a wonderful TEDx uh, piece as well that you might want to look into. Kos, C-O-S-S, Marte, M-A-R-T-E. And he says he had difficulty reaching his, his clients and he wanted to look at something new. So he jokes, I created 10,000 business cards, which I gave out to people who were upper middle class or wealthy. But I thought they might be interested in what I was offering. And to make it as easy as possible for them, we created a delivery service. Think of Uber Eats, but in a different context. He had his team of people delivering illegal drugs to their places of work or a park or their homes. That's how he distinguished himself from the competition. You didn't have to go to the street corner. Right. So uh, his creativity paid off very well when he was out of prison and was turned down over a hundred times in trying to find a legitimate job. And he realized that society had a problem. We were not giving ex-convicts who truly were reformed and wanted to re-enter society a level playing field, a good chance to get back. So he decided enough of this. I need to work. I have a child who I promised I was going to survive prison for, and I'm back, and I need to support my child. So he said, forget those people who won't hire me. He went out, and he created business cards, and he gave them to women in yoga pants that he saw on the streets. And he got their email addresses, and he scheduled classes in parks. And from the parks, he moved to a studio. And then the studio started offering uh, live streaming classes and even recorded classes. So those same skills, which I consider to be chutzpah, that benefited him in one business, transferred over to another. Also raises the question, is chutzpah good or bad? But, uh, but that's another question potentially to discuss. But Joe, also to continue on, and I apologize that I, I get caught up in my story sometimes. Um, Purpose, I think, is critical because without purpose, we don't move forward when things get really tough. If we're really fortunate, we're never challenged that much. We're not, uh, think of the people who lost their jobs during COVID or lost a loved one during COVID. How do you move on in situations like these? I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a psychologist. Um, my experience is based on what I've learned from family, friends, founding a business, um, and being open to new ideas. And I find that purpose is one of those uh, key elements of chutzpah. For everybody who's on this call, who's writing a book, or has written a book, you have a purpose in mind. And that has either kept you going all the way through publication, or will hopefully keep you going um, so you can eliminate the ambiguity, make your decisions, move on, and then have the joy of holding up your book and speaking here and in other um, events about your journey and uh, hopefully sharing ideas that will help people along their journey. Thank you, Mason. Um, Joe has another question, and the question is, is and I... I, I think I know where you're going to go with this, but is there one in particular that tends to hold most people back? And then if you were to give someone a piece of advice after reading your book, 
Where would you have them aim their initial efforts? Okay, that's good. Uh, Joe, by the way, you're going to have to pay for two questions when this is all over because we're trying to limit this. But I'm going to go to trailblazing here for a moment. Trailblazing, we tend to think of the Elon Musks of the world. Well, Mother Teresa was a trailblazer. Now, you don't have to be chutzpah on steroids, Steve Jobs, Mother Teresa, Elon Musk, to, uh, and be at that level to say, wow, that person is chutzpah. Everyday people have chutzpah. Um, trailblazing to me is when you reach a point where you say, look, I know I'm human. I know I'm going to make mistakes, but I know that in all likelihood, I'm going to get by most of these mistakes. Now, if I'm willing to risk, if I'm willing, and by trailblazing, I'm willing to stretch boundaries, either um, product-wise, personally, if I'm willing to do that and fail, but then get up and dust myself off and continue on, that is critical to chutzpah. Thank you. Um, Chris wants, um, if you could dive into understanding a little bit more. Okay. So understanding need, pain, and opportunity. Uh, this came from my days when I was uh, uh, doing a lot of sales training. And actually, I first created this model that I called the chutzpah rules as a high-level sales course. And in sales, we know that we can't make the sale until we create value. And we can't create value if we don't understand where the client's or prospective client's pain point is. Everybody has needs and we express needs all the time. Um, I remember working with a woman um, several years ago who every third day she'd complain that um, her car broke down again. It just wasn't reliable. And I had a chance to speak with her one day and I said, boy, this seems like it's regular. It's got to be costing you a fortune. And by the way, I wasn't selling cars. So it wasn't like I was trying to make a sale. I was trying to understand what drove her because I like speaking to people and understand uh, what they're facing. And she said, look, I know I need a new car, but I'm not sure that I have the money now or that I should prioritize that over other things. And I spoke with her some more. I said, do you drive your kids to school? said, yeah, I have two, two kids and I do drive them and I pick them up after work. And I said, have you ever broken down while they were in the car? And she said, no, fortunately I haven't. I said, well, what will happen? Because it probably will happen if you do break down and you're on the side of the road and you have two children, one an infant and one that's three years old um, in your car and you can't get it started. Do you feel that that might change things for you. And it's like a light went on in her head. And three days later, she had gotten rid of her car and gotten a reliable other used car. What happened was, and it wasn't, my intention was to understand, but to understand her need. And by asking her enough questions, she realized there was a pain here that was inevitable. And she could head the pain off or she could wait. So the question related to need, pain, and understanding. If we're trying to persuade somebody of something, 
we have to move them from needs, which everybody's willing to express a need, which frankly may or may not be honest. I've been in sales long enough. For those of us who have sold, we understand this. People might might say, oh, you know what I really need is this. You go, well, that's perfect because my, my product, my service will solve that right for you. Well, yeah, but I'm not really sure I want to move forward. It's too quick. But if it's a legitimate need and we say, well, tell me, you say you need it. Why? Um, I can share another sales story with you. I don't know how we're doing time-wise. Let me check. 641. Okay. Um, I was working with a, uh, an executive recruitment firm, and I was working with their sales team. And one of their most senior and experienced salespeople uh, had a call in Atlanta uh, with a pharmaceutical company. I flew down to observe the call. The call went along the way many sales calls do. He spoke about the company, about uh, the company that he represented, that I was there on behalf of as well. He asked questions. Well, tell me about yourself and how long has the position been open and what's the range you're gonna be paying with? All good questions. And as the call meandered, I kind of glanced at my watch and I thought to myself, I hope that there's going to be some purpose um, and not just a, well, thank you for your time, please keep us in mind, because he was looking at multiple search firms at the time. Sure enough, it went to, well, we really appreciate the time you've given us, and uh, can I follow up with you in two weeks? Sure, that would be great. Who says, nah, don't follow up with me. It's more, yeah, follow up with me. I'm not taking your call, by the way, but yeah, feel free to follow up with me, because nobody wants to be rude out front. And as he got up, I said, if I can ask just uh, a couple of questions, just so I have a better understanding. You said the position's been open for six months. Who's been managing the people in that department? He said, oh, we have somebody who's splitting his time between his own team and this team. I said, have you had any turnover between those two teams? He said, actually, yeah, we've lost people. I said, can you attribute any of that? Or you think it's because they don't feel that they're being managed properly or they're getting the attention? He said, we worry that that might be contributing to it. Then I asked, okay, the team that is without this person, and by the way, they'd been, they hadn't filled the position in over a year. They were just wait. There was ambiguity problems for them. They didn't know who to choose. I said, what have you lost by way of projects? Can you put a dollar amount to it? And he put a, a dollar amount that was in the low seven figures. I said, okay, this was really helpful to me. Now you should know that whether you choose us or select somebody else, it's going to take a solid six months before you have anybody on board for this high level position. Uh, there's gonna be a lot of negotiation. You're gonna be interviewing a handful of, or more than a handful of people, hopefully, because this is critical to you. What's gonna happen if we wait six months? Can you afford to now wait into the next fiscal year before we even get this position done? And he said, you know, that's a good question. I'm going to have to think about this and all you've said. Thank you very much. We left. Two days later, my rep got the call saying we got that we had got the deal. We had earned the deal. And it was because that need that was expressed, yeah, I need to fill the position, became a pain that he realized he, he could no longer live with and didn't want to deepen. So hopefully that uh, takes us to the need pain. The opportunity side, I mentioned Uber. Would people have said, boy, I really could use a car that could come when I need it, but I don't want to have to call a limousine service or a cab company because you can't always get those. The pain was, I'm stuck out here. It's 12 o'clock and the subways have stopped running in D.C., so how am I going to get home? The opportunity was, hey, ride sharing. 
We have a technology that will enable people on their own schedules to come out with a sliding scale of rates based on demand at the time. They saw an opportunity. By the way, Uber in their original pitches, they had a pitch deck as all these companies do when they're looking for a PE or venture capital. And uh, one of the companies that they gave it to hired an expert, a university professor to evaluate their pitch deck and their business plan and see if the market was really a multi-billion dollar market. Well, the expert came back and said, you know, the entire market is $2 billion. And that's all taxi and limousine, all buses, all trains, all private services that I can find. And that's your market size. For them to think that this startup's gonna get uh, a billion of it, 50% of it, is kind of absurd because also you have regulatory issues, taxi and limousine commissions in every city, in every state, across the country. License, New York selling their medallions. Talk about an industry that changed overnight when uh, Uber hit. Um, well, that expert was wrong. That expert couldn't see the opportunity that the people who were working on Uber could see. So I include that in that category of uh, uh, understanding need, pain, and opportunity. Thank you, Mason. I love that. Um, one last question, I'm, and I'm going to I'm going to personalize it to you. Um, so we're just going to put you to the test of trailblazing here. Um, uh, Dr. Pamela asks or suggests first that uh, purpose can change or evolve over time. Have you personally experienced that? Oh, uh, absolutely. And it's okay to have, and thank you, Dr. Pamela, for that question. It's, we can have multiple purposes, but, um, and they will change over time because our situations change over time. Um, related to me, um, my chutzpah story, I had a business, I was an entrepreneur, we won fast growth awards, I sold those pieces off. I thought, you know, I've done this, maybe I'll have fun going back into larger corporations and mentoring younger people. And I did, but then something terrible happened. My hair turned gray. And suddenly, there wasn't quite the value that I'd had previously. And people didn't want to pay what I'd been making. So it's like, what am I doing here? They're changing my role, it's clear I'm being forced out. So I decided to leave and go back into public speaking, which I had done after my first book. And for those of you aspiring or first time authors, I wrote that first book as, a, as an expensive business card to be the expert in restaurant marketing, to get speaking engagements. And it worked very well. My book did terribly on Amazon. It was in the early days, 15 plus years ago, um, but I still managed to generate six figures in speaking income. Um, so kind of take that Amazon, and I wouldn't say that now because now I need them, but that's not the point. Uh, the point is that uh, my purpose related to that was use the book as a leverage to open new business opportunities for me. And it worked that way. It, it worked actually perfectly. So I decided now I'm going to go back into public speaking. And my timing was impeccable because I was using January 2020 as my kickoff. And I started reaching out and getting things in the calendar and news about covid was breaking about this 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 uh strange virus this flu like like thing that was going on in china 
um, and how now it's spreading to Italy. And Italy was one of the first countries in, uh, in uh, Europe, if I remember correctly, to be hit. Um, and by March, they were all gone. They were done. Um, I ended up responding to a poll uh, which said how long, and this was in the event industry, because I was targeting event and meeting professionals for my speaking uh, engagements. And the poll was, when do you think this will be solved? This summer, this winter, or sometime next year? Well, this summer and this winter were the, uh, were the, the optimistic ones. 90-some percent of people said that's when it's going to be. I took a look at this and I said, from what I can tell, the way this is spreading, we'll be lucky if this is resolved in 2021. And I put down, I was like in the 4% that said, you're looking at 12 to 18 months out. And even I was wrong, because it still hasn't come back completely. Um, but there I was, no speaking engagements, no income. And you can only watch Tiger King so many times on Netflix. I'm sorry, as, as, uh, <laughs> as deranged as the characters are, as much as you, you study and you puzzle, you go, there's got to be some deep issues going on over here. I thought, okay, this is the time to go back and finish that book that I wanted to do. So my purpose became finish this book in time to use it as a door opener to public speaking again. So my purpose changed. Um, there's a story in my book, by the way, and it's gonna, this gets, the book is very easy to read, I've been told. It makes you laugh at times, but there is one section that some people told me brought him to tears. And it's about a family in Czechoslovakia that uh, World War II, so 1940, World War II has broken out, a Jewish family in a small town called Serenia. Um, the Hungarian army, and they were allies of uh, Nazi Germany at the time, came in, took over the town. And things got worse in particular, well, for everybody, there's no doubt about that, but in particular for the Jews. They lost their businesses, they, they were more restricted. But they weren't being sent to concentration camps. Well, in January of 44, um, the, the, the German army came in and took over. And things got dramatically worse. So you go from terror, how am I going to feed my family? How am I going to survive to what's going to happen to us? They'd heard of the camps by that point. They didn't know. Well, in um, I think it was March, within a couple of months, they were all sent to a, um, a not a concentration camp, but a, a ghetto in Hungary, in Ungvar, Hungary. Um, and they were uh, there is kind of a collection area for Jews from all over that area that, that the Germans had gotten into. Um, they were there for about seven weeks. And then the cattle trains came and took them to Auschwitz. Uh, so this family, which had been eight children and two parents, one son um, was off and they believed in a work camp. Um, one daughter had died along the way. One son had married and now had a newborn baby. They basically all disembark in Auschwitz and they get separated for the most part. A couple of the sisters stayed together. And that got me thinking about man's search for meaning and what it is that people kept people alive. And I've interviewed survivors and I've asked the question, what helped? In this case, the purpose was we had all promised each other we were going to do everything we could to survive so we would meet back together after the war. And they would put up with anything that came their way. Now, again, luck could change things. You were selected for the gas chambers, it's over. 
uh, a guard decides he's bored and he takes shooting practice, it's over. But if luck didn't interfere, bad luck specifically, then, and you had an equal chance of surviving, this is where Dr. Viktor Frankl says he was able to tell those who could survive. I'm familiar with the story. I know the story very well. And I've also researched it and found the details that I provide in the book are also available on other sites. In the case of um, three of the survivors, they were sent from um, Auschwitz to a camp called Lansing in uh, Lansing, mm -hmm. Austria. And uh, they were liberated by American soldiers on May 5th of 1945, um, which was fortunate for them, obviously, to have survived, but to have been liberated by the Americans versus the Russians also gave you a better chance of survival because the Russian army, they didn't have the discipline um, to, and, and they had been under horrendous attacks as the American army had been by the Nazis, but they'd been going at it longer. So for them, there was no discipline in regards to let's take care of these prisoners. So the story and the purpose goes from what am I going to do to survive to how am I going to find funding for my company so that my family, my employees can stay employed. It does change. It's a great question. Thank you, Mason. And um, I also just want to let you know how much, how personally I, I loved listening to you and, and hearing um, hearing from your deep well uh, of uh, experience uh, as well as expertise. Um, and also thank you for making the offer that if any listeners would like to just to spend a little bit of time with you, maybe up to 30 minutes uh, or so to examine the chutzpah advantage and how it might impact um, their world. Uh, if any of you are listening to this after the fact, if you have an opportunity that you think Mason might be a good fit for, I would highly encourage you to order a copy of the chutzpah uh, advantage um, it's more than a it's more than a collection of principles. It outlines a philosophy. It outlines not only a way to think, but a way to make decisions, maybe sooner or quicker, uh, rather than hanging on to the indecision or the ambiguity, and and how to just simply be, and show up in a world that is facing a unique set. Uh, of challenges uh, in the evolution of change. So thank you, Mason. Um, before I sign off, uh, again, I'm the chairman of Indie Books International, along with my business partner, uh, Henry DeVries. We believe that writing the right book can establish your credibility, can be a gateway uh, book or tool for opening doors and doing more of the good work that you feel called uh, and compelled to do. Feel free to visit our website at www.indiebooksintl.com. That's Indie, I-N-D-I-E, books, B-O-O-K-S-I-N-T-L.com, indiebooksintl.com. We have events coming up. We have our uh, friends and family forum uh, in March, which will be in person uh, in La Jolla, California. Never uh, a bad place to go. 
uh, and hang out with uh, uh, a group of authors helping authors and speakers uh, helping speakers. Um, with that, I will say goodbye for this week. Have a great rest of your week. Um, get out of some of your ambiguity, make those decisions and move forward with courage and in becoming a trailblazer along the way. And that's a wrap. Thank you, everybody.